success leaves clues. I didn't know how to get past the couple million dollar a year business. I, I, I don't want to water down the million dollar, $2 million business, but a lot of people can get to that point by muscling it out, like more calls, more emails, more fun, right? Everybody can like be aggressive and do a million dollars in my opinion, but to get past that, it's a different model. It's, it's scaling, growing culture. It's a lot of other things. So coaching and mentoring, in my opinion, is the answer. If you want to grow anything fast, your personal health, anything, if you want to improve anything, you can grow by studying, but, but people is usually the answer. In my opinion, people is the answer. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 158. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? Good, doing well. We just had two fun interviews tonight. One was a 32-year-old CPA that is a millionaire, and then the other a fire marshal who is also a millionaire or close to, right? He says like 960, but then he's got a big pension, so... Some fun in- interviews coming up here, but everything going well on my end. What's going on with you? Not a whole lot. I'm ready. We're kind of in a little rut with this weather lately. I feel like it's turned winter already and we skipped fall because we went from 90 degrees last week and I was swimming in the pool to wearing a parka, you know, at 40 yeah. degrees, which is very unseasonable for us. But getting ready to, <laughs> to have a, a good Halloween here shortly. And by the time this this uh, releases, we'll be on the eve of the election, which is going to be interesting uh, to yeah, see what crazy. happens Everything there. Everything could change that, right? I just hope ski resorts are open this winter too. Yeah, me too, man. I'm looking forward to I think they some should, time in the mountains. Least, yeah, they should be probably at least to some reduced capacity, I would think. Yeah, I would think so too. It's interesting. We were talking a little bit before the show, you know, about books and, and authors and different things. And, you know, I brought up Ditterod Effect, which James Clear goes into detail. And you had never heard of it, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Let, let me just summarize for our, our listeners a guy, a French philosopher, Dennis Diderot, he lived his near, nearly his entire life in poverty. And at 52 years old, he basically wrote the, an encyclopedia, one of the most comprehensive encyclopedias at the time. And after that, she, he got a, a big check, basically. And after he got that big check, he acquired a, a new scarlet robe. And that's kind of where things went wrong. And I just want to read a little bit that, that James Clear writes about the Diderot effect. He says, Diderot's scarlet robe was beautiful, so beautiful in fact that he immediately noticed how out of place it seemed when surrounded by the rest of his common possessions. In his words, there is no more coordination, no more unity, no more beauty between his robe and the rest of his items. The philosopher soon felt the urge to buy some new things to match the beauty of his robe. He replaced his old rug with a new one from Damascus. He decorated his home with beautiful sculptures and a better kitchen table. He bought a new mirror to place above the mantle and his straw chair was relegated to the antechamber by a leather chair. These reactive purchases have become known as the Diderot effect. The Diderot effect states that obtaining a new possession often creates a spiral of consumption, which leads you to acquire more new things. As a result, we end up buying things that our previous selves never needed to feel happy or fulfilled. So why do we want things that we don't need? Why does this occur? It's a common thing in our society, and it's something that you know we talk about with our millionaires sometimes in, in trying to figure out that happiness or fulfilled, what makes them happy and fulfilled. 
it's kind of an interesting thing to think about that this Diderot effect, if you want to refer to it as, as this, started in the 1700s. Why does this occur, Clark? I don't know. It's really interesting. And and when you start thinking about it for yourself, I think it happens to everybody, right? I, like you buy a new – the examples they give in this article is you buy a new pair of shoes and now you got to buy earrings or pants or a dress or whatever to match. You know, you buy a new TV and all of a sudden you, you need a TV stand or new furniture like, I think that just naturally happens in all of us, right? You start upgrading one piece of your life and you upgrade the other. It's a little bit different than this, but it kind of reminds me of Dave Ramsey's quote where he says, we buy things we don't need with the money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And in a sense, that's part of it. But in a sense, it's also just something emotionally, I think, triggers us, right? Because we it's fun to buy new things. It's fun to buy a new car, new golf clubs, whatever it may be. But as soon as you buy new golf clubs, right? I need new golf clubs. But as soon as I buy new golf clubs, I'm paying for lessons and getting a golf bag too, right? Yeah. It makes sense for me to just get golf clubs. So I, I think that's naturally happens to all of us. And I, I don't, you know, psychologically, I'm not sure exactly what triggers it. Yeah. I mean, you think about retailers and, and the retailer industry, and I've, I've spent a good chunk of my career in that world. So in terms of all the tricks of the trade, I mean, you know, idea is to, to supply complimentary products that people, like you mentioned, buying the golf bag with the golf clubs and everything else. I mean, it's how you drive sales in a retail environment. And a lot of money is spent every single year on marketing to people to buy products and then to buy that complimentary product. You bring up buying a new pair of pants, you're going to buy a new pair of shoes, and then you're going to buy a new shirt. Then maybe you're going to buy a new hat to go with the whole outfit. So it's interesting. And I'm not saying there's one way to to go about doing it or not, but James Clear goes into how to master the Diderot effect. One is to just reuse exposure. Obviously, if you're not around that environment or if you don't go to the store to buy a new pair of pants, you're not going to also buy a new pair of shoes. It says to buy items that fit your current system, things that I got a wardrobe and let's just make sure that I only have a certain amount. And if I'm going to buy something new, change it out for something instead of continuing to accumulate. Set self-imposed limits. And and he goes into a couple other different things that people can do to kind of overcome that or that consumption tendency. But, you know, I found for myself too, I I think just giving in general makes you feel less like you need to consume. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a concept and it's interesting to, to think about and discuss. And it's something that we'll definitely keep discussing with our millionaires and, you know, how they feel fulfillment. But you see it in society. I mean, you get somebody into a new house. Guess what? They're buying new furniture to fill up that new house. They're going to do all these different things to make that event in their life feel new, feel good. You've got to change out this. And sometimes it, it is annoying going through your routine and seeing the same things all the time. So I get, you know, wanting to change out furniture or want to change out pictures or whatever it might be or change clothes or whatever it is. But anyway, something something interesting to think about. Last week we had Daniel. He had a net worth of $2.7 million dollars. Dropped down to two million during COVID. He's got over a million dollars in retirement accounts and works as an engineer. On today's show, we have Chris. He's got a net worth of over five million dollars, almost all real estate. We get into why real estate for him and his steps for success in investing and growing his wealth. Once again, if you're interested in sponsoring the show, send us an email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Also, always looking for new great guests to have on the show. If you're interested, if you're a millionaire or near a million, well on your way. Send us an email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Chris. Chris, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, at, the, at the risk of aging my, uh, myself, I, we've been at real estate since 91 uh, in some shape, form, or fashion or another. Built some homes, did uh, the brokerage route where I owned a franchise, sold it to Cobalt Banker in 2000. And then after that, started working on my own investments and coaching others throughout U.S. and Canada. And then that led to the lovely 2008 debacle, as I like to call it. And that hit so many people, but it hit us hard. We had to dig out about three or four years worth of uh, properties we assigned on personally with banks. And that caused us to re-engineer, literally restructure the entire business model to buy everything without banks and without cash. And that's been going that way since 2012. So um, it was built to be as recession-proof as we could possibly make it or recession-resistant. I don't think anything could be proof. Um, and then, of course, not knowing COVID was coming, we it, it got tested and, and we're doing very, very well. So that's that's a thumbnail. I can go back to any piece of that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So your net worth sitting north of $5 million right now. Is that all primarily in real estate and real estate ventures? Yeah, it is. Um, I've done nothing but real estate since 91, except for a couple of diversions of speaking for companies and doing some sales things for companies around the world, literally. But it's it's always been real estate in the background, fast or slow. Never invested in the stock market? Um, dabbled, tiny, tiny, tiny bit. But I, you know, I'm probably step on toes here, but I just, the stock market to me, unless you're a professional, is a gamble. Um, so if I, my properties can't go to zero, even if the market totally craps that bed, I can't go to zero and the stock market can with certain companies. So I just stay away from it. Yeah, no, no, it's not stepping on toes. We just have, we got listeners that play both ways, right? So I think it's interesting for, mm-hmm. for our listeners, get an idea and get a background of who you are, where you're coming from, what angle. So Real estate, are you primarily focused single family, multifamily, fix and flips, buy and hold? What, what's kind of the, the bread and butter? Well, because real estate changes so much, and I've lived through, you know, three cycles and 9-11 and the 08, you know, all this stuff happened. I'm just a big proponent of being what I call more of the transaction engineer. So not necessarily one type of deal, but our niche is buying everything single family primarily, buying everything, uh, as I alluded to earlier, on terms without banks. So I teach single family, but we run into deals all the time. My office building was bought on owner financing. I've done six units, four units. So you can buy anything on terms, literally planes, cars, right? But we focus on single families primarily. So Chris, when you say buying on terms without banks, without cash, what does that mean for someone that's not familiar? Sure. Terms to us means lease purchase, purchasing a home on lease purchase with a, with a seller, uh, or when I say owner financing, that's the other term we use. Owner financing to us is a niche within a niche. We buy homes that are free and clear. They have no debt. So these sellers are not stressed in any, in any form, they, but they want the best price. And so we structure monthly principal only payments, no interest to the seller. They're happy they got their price. We're thrilled because we're getting major principal pay down and hedging it against any market. And those are the two main ways that we buy, at least purchase owner financing. And that's what you've been doing since when? 91? I know you said you started in 91, but when did that strategy start happening? No, that started specifically in 2012 uh, after saying, what the heck just happened? Because I was signed on personally to everything when the crash happened in 08. And so the banks come looking, they don't care. If if they got your personal signature, they're knocking on your door. So uh, that was since 2012 after winding out of all that mess and re-engineering the business. Uh, so it's been, what, eight years now, eight plus. 
Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit, Chris. What happened in 2008? Maybe how much did you hold before that, the financial the crash? And did you lose some? Did you lose it all? What was it like then for you? Yeah, we had about, we were holding around 22 or 23 properties with another six or eight good sized commercial projects in the kind of in the queue. Um, financing like a light switch went stopped overnight. So those projects in the queue went away. And then every property without exception that we had went down anywhere between one third in some projects, two thirds in value. Uh, we had a condominium conversion building, six units, uh, multifamily converted to a condominium that dropped two thirds of value. And so that took literally from February of 08, I remember like it was yesterday till February of 12 to short sale, let foreclose, work out or sell normally those buildings and or properties. And those consisted well over 10 million. Um, those are all underwater. And so that was a full-time job working those out. And to the point where I almost said, well, what the heck, I, I'm done with the real estate. So then we instead we re-engineered it to get where we are today. And in hindsight, I'm super happy, but you couldn't have convinced me of that back in 08. So did you lose everything in 2008? What, did you start from the ground up after that? I lost everything. I did not file personally, but we we pretty much lost everything. I just rebuilt the hard way. Many people tell me to file and we just weathered it out. And yes, we rebuilt from scratch. And I'm talking, I moved into a one-bedroom apartment with my wife. My kids are adults, so they didn't have to deal with that. And then we rebuilt uh, to where we are today to you know, virtually debt-free and, and created the, the new wealth. Gotcha. And so now, how are you structured? Do you have partners? Do you do it all yourself? Do you have investors? What do you do? No investors, no banks. It's just myself, my son-in-law, Zach, and my son, Nick, and a great support team because we buy several properties per month still, even more so with this crisis going on, chaos. And then we have students around the country and some in Canada that we actually do revenue sharing while we coach them. So all total, we do around 25 properties a month right now. Wow. So I want to come back to that piece, but just taking a step back, how did all the real estate stuff start? You said you were, you kind of built up a brokerage firm, right? But why real estate in the first place? Yeah. Interesting question. So I grew up in a family business having nothing to do with real estate. It was a actually a welding supply business in industrial gas. But my father had, let me think like four, maybe five branches around New England, you know, brick and mortar branches. And so he would build the building and then we had the company lease it back from him. So I'd go and see that going on. And then he explained to me, you know, how the math works with that. Cause I couldn't as a younger kid understand, well, what do you mean? It's your building. You're leasing it from yourself. I didn't, didn't get all that at first. So I was around it in that respect. And then he had friends that did a lot of land development. So I, I just was exposed to it. So from an early age, I'd say high school on, I always want to do something in real estate. And that's what got me started in 91, which I was probably, I think what I was then five, about 25 years old. I mean, that's pretty young, right? 25. Yeah, well, I, so I took some bumps. I, I went to the, the um, I went through two cycles between the early '90s and then the the '08. And so, you, you, my wife said recently to me, kiddingly, it took you 50 years to figure this out. <laughs> you, gotta, you know what we're doing now is amazing, but it just hey, it takes time, right? Yeah. Did you go to college? I did. I just for general business, I went to Clark University in in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, but. And, and Bentley College for the year before that. But that was all just for business. I mean, during it, I would leave and go work for my father's company. And so it was it was to get through the degree more than anything. So pre-2008 or pre-buying on terms, as you call it, was that, were you investing with your own money? Were you, inv- were you raising money? How were you doing real estate before 2008? Well, I had great credit and I had some money then. So I would, I would use both of those. We also pulled in investors. 
and we use the traditional banks. Like, like I've talked to investors that have been at this 20 years and they say, well, I, I just do my conventional deal. I put 25% down if it's commercial or whatever it might be. So I was doing that. I was doing conventional, put some money down, whether it's minor or investors, and then sign personally on the loan. So let's talk about the strategy now you call buying on turns, which is either a lease purchase or owner financing. So walk us through a deal maybe on on both sides, the lease purchase and the owner financing from A, how you find it, how you go about finding it. And then once you find it, I guess it would be the negotiation with the seller, right? To try and convince them to finance it this way or sell it this way. So just walk us through that so people understand. Yeah. And you use the word that everyone asks me, you use the word convince and they'll say to me, well, how do you convince them? Like, why would they do this? And so here's the flow. We deal with uh, pointedly expired listings that didn't sell with a realtor on the market. And I don't care how good or how crappy the market is, you have those in every market. We deal with for sale by owners and we deal with for rent by owners. Those are the three categories. We have virtual assistants calling them with our script. If they're somewhat open, that's all we need to know to learning how to sell net more as long as they have time, then we go ahead and call them personally. And my opening question always without a doubt is if we can get you your price or a fair price, because we don't lowball, are you open to at least purchase or owner financing? And that means we translate it for them. That means you'd have to wait on your equity if you have any. If you need your equity tomorrow, I'm not your buyer. And so about a third of the people we speak with are open to it. A third of the properties in all of the United States, roughly speaking, are debt-free. So there's a lot of people to speak to out there that, that, that they don't have to be convinced. They just you just have to solve their problem. Problem could be price. Problem could be I got a functionality issue. It won't sell conventionally. And so once you get to that point, then we just decide if it's free and clear, we're going on a financing. If there's underlying debt, in other words, they still have a mortgage on it, we're going lease purchase. And, and what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, break yeah. break it down for us. Break it down because I think that's yeah. what I think that's unique to the show here is what you're bringing. I mean, we've had people on that are traditional syndicators and multifamily and single family investors, right. but but not as much this. Right. So let's use and the lease purchase. I could use in numerous scenarios, but let's use one where a seller just had some equity. Uh, let's say it's worth three hundred, and you were my seller, and you owed two fifty. You didn't sell in the open market. So my opening conversation would be great. What did you think you were going to net? And they'll think it through and say, well, I had to pay the commission. I had to, you know, negotiate probably. I, I think I probably would have got 280. All right, great. And you owe 250. So you think you got 30 grand equity. Yep. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to structure a lease purchase whereby I pay your underlying mortgage payment. I take care of all maintenance and repairs. I I got the house. You don't have to worry about anything. You'll get your full 30,000, but you're going to get it on or before the end of the term. And let's use for this discussion, 36 months. So in 36 months, how do I exit out of that house? I don't take the house and start paying the debt until I place in it what we call a tenant buyer. All that is is a buyer, especially right now, that can't get financing today, but with a little work on credit or a little seasoning, as the bank calls it, or whatever else they need for time, we make sure that their time they need to be mortgage ready is going to fit within that term of, in this example, 36 months. So basically, the underlying payment that I'm paying, I'm getting more than that from the buyer monthly. So I have a spread there. I'm getting a down payment up front. So that's another payday. And then on the back end, I'm going to get the principal pay down on that underlying loan. Because remember, I said to the seller, I'm going to give you a 30 and I'm going to pay off your loan. But the loan's less now. The benefit's to me. And of course, I marked the house up too. So in summary, all that to say, there's three paydays on every deal here. So you get cash now 
cash flow monthly and cash flow when this cashes out on or before 36 months. That's a cool business model, regardless of real estate or not. That's a cool business model for an entrepreneur to have three different types of cash flow. And those for us, to give you a point of reference, range around 75 grand per property, us as a family company. And our students range anywhere from a low of 45,000 up to 250 in higher markets. So they're quite lucrative. That's one deal. And you're just, so you're basically just transferring the existing mortgage when you find a new buyer. Uh, it doesn't even transfer. Good question. So the deed stays in, in all these purchase, the deed stays in the seller's name and so doesn't the loan. We're just making the payment on their behalf until such time our buyer gets their end loan and then everything gets cashed out and the gets, uh, sellers are gone. Right. And But the new buyer then takes a new mortgage. Yep. yep. Or pays for it in cash. I guess that could happen too, right? Right. Rare, but yes. And then the, the owner financing side, it, that's if they don't own any debt on the property, right? And that and what kind of terms do you look for there? Yeah, preferably that's the, that's the type of seller. And then uh, what we look for there is we used to do four years, uh, about a year before COVID, uh, happily knock on wood. We started teaching our students and our own deals to go longer in terms because when you're making monthly principal payments, the longer you go, you're paying that down rapidly compared to a conventional loan. So now we're going like in the five to 10 range is pretty standard. And so, and, and people think this is stuck in one price range. We go from, you know, 150,000, even lower up to 2 million, two and a half million. We just did an oceanfront home for 950, no money down monthly principal payments. So there's plenty of people that just ego-wise, planning-wise, estate planning-wise, they just want their price and they want it over time. Plenty of people. So if you buy a $400,000 house, though, and you're paying it down over four years, that's 100000 in principle, right, a year. How are you getting that much in cash flow? Because it won't rent for that much. Yeah, we don't. What we do is let's use the four hundred. We calculate what a conventional loan would be for if a buyer was coming in and putting down, let's say, five or ten percent on that on that four hundred. We calculate what that loan payment might be, and let's just say for round numbers for this discussion, it's two grand. So we say to the seller, "Look, I can't go to the market and put my buyer in here with an onerous payment. They're going to know roughly what a mortgage would be, even though they can't get one yet." So I need to be around 1500 for you. And by the way, that's probably accurate in the 400 range. I'm going to be around 1500 principal only payment. And then when I say terms of five to 10 years, there's a balloon payment then. Right. So that's it's the same strategy, I guess, as the lease purchase, right? In, in the sense of finding an owner to, to take it over. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We exit the same way. Um, I mean, these get more complicated. I'm giving you kind of the, the, sure, the vanilla sure, sure. deals, right? Right. We can do, you can take a lease purchase and then throughout the term, uh, actually buy that home and the loan stays in the seller's name. I mean, so this gets a little bit more advanced, but but those are the two basic deals we do. Yeah. No, it's an interesting concept and one we haven't talked about much on the show. I mean, some owner financing, but I don't I don't think lease to own as much. I think we had one guy that did it with small, cheaper homes, but but not as much as you. How many deals you said how many deals do you do a year? March, April, and May, we, we hit 25 plus uh, between us and our students. Prior to that, we were in the 12 to 15 range and COVID just blew the doors off of it because buyers and sellers need terms more than ever. And quite frankly, it's the trend has been going that way before COVID where more and more deals were being done outside of banks. It's grown. Like early 90s, there was a national stat I read that said there were like two or 3% of the deals were done on terms. Well, that's grown into the teens and it's growing fast. And so that's a good that's good news for the niche. So with this strategy, do you do you do any multifamily? I know you said you do your office building, but I, I guess it could be all the same, right? As long as you can find another buyer to come in and purchase the property yeah, within a little different strategy. Yeah, a little different strategy though on on the on the interim 
time. So I did I did a six and a four recently that that recently sold. They were done in my self directed IRA, but they were done with owners that again were free and clear, agreed to monthly principal payments. And the play obviously is not with a multi to find a rent home buyer. It was let's improve the net operating income, let's increase the rents, et cetera. And then at the end, let's sell it be- between the principal pay down and the improving of the NOI. It's all math with the multis, as you know, uh, in that four to 10 unit range is where I like to do those. Gotcha. So how did you first do this, Chris? Was it, did you just happen to come across it? You talked to somebody that said they want owner financing or did you think of it or read, meet somebody? How did it, how did the strategy start? I wish I could tell you I invented it. <laughs> all I did is uh, is been yeah, I, all I did is develop a system and a team around it to to show people how to do it and stay with them, which is a, a gap in real estate. But how I got into it was when when times were just real really in the dumps from that crash, I just started exploring and I, I found books as far back as late eighteen hundreds talking about you know Carnegie's Rockefellers all all these people that did owner financing and lease purchase. I mean this was this is not new. It just wasn't mainstream. And so the the three payday system, which we've trademarked, has been real popular now. And we've just started to build a system around those types of deals. But they've always existed individually on their own out there somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So, Chris, you built up this business. You've been all over real estate for the last, call it 30 years almost. Do you envision yourself changing the strategy going forward at all? Or is this kind of what you're going to ride off into the sunset with? No, this for me, I mean, I'm 54. This for me is what we're doing now because my kids are 30 and 31 and my son in law same age. And so they're running it with me. It's a lot of fun to see that. And quite frankly, at this stage, it's a lot of fun to see a student come from literally zero, no experience to doing $100,000 three payday deals. And we've got many of those. And so I think people ask me all the time, why do you coach? I said, until you coach, you don't know the satisfaction, the different level of, of what that means. It's just a cool thing. And as long as real estate continues to be as, what's the word? There's so much variety in real estate, no deal's the same. And I don't, I can't imagine any force or person or thing that would change that. And so as long as I'm not bored, I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, totally. Do, do you typically, when, you, when you're uh, working with your kids, do you ever have any issues? Do you have arguments? We haven't talked a lot about family business, but I think it's interesting that, that you've gotten your children involved in your son-in-law. Has there been any issues you intend to pass the business on to them when you kind of retire and step aside? Yeah, they're earning some now as we grow it, uh, so, which is pretty cool. And and to the argument and the family thing, everybody asks that. What's pretty unique is, I, I wish I could tell you we, we designed this and this was all set up like this, right? But it wasn't. What happened was I was doing it. Then I started getting busy. I asked my son in 2014 if he could help with some online things because he knows that better. And then he slowly started taking over all my buyers. I just couldn't handle it. And then Zach was a, he had no experience. He came from bartending and personal training. And so I started training him in December of 15. It's like I trained any other student. And then he started taking over all the acquisitions. And he loved that. So they didn't want each other's role. It just kind of grew organically. And then my daughter took over as general manager before she had her, her kids. So all these roles kind of just formed. And it was neat because everybody would be like, well, I don't want that anyway. I like what I do. So they all fell into their own groove. And then to the argument thing and how we grow it is we belong to a, a group of entrepreneurs called Elite Entrepreneurs, and, and they've taught us since the end of 17, just mission values, meeting flow, rhythm, all that. And so when you have values that you all decided on, they weren't mandated by me, we all decided on what the values were and how decisions were to be made. So when decisions come up, there really isn't an argument. It's does it fit here with what we said in our mission? And if not, we move on. So it is, it is that cut and dry. 
And so it makes it easy for communication and open communication and growth. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. I know, I know some people have amazing success with, with passing a business on and sometimes other people don't as much. So I think it's right. great that, that you all have been able to do that. And I think it's cool to see your passion to see that protrude in your children as they kind of start to grow and, and, and kind of learn it themselves. So Chris, I got to ask as you, as you're developing all these strategies and, and learning real estate, did you pay for your houses in cash over the years? Do you carry a mortgage on them? What's kind of your mindset surrounding that for your personal residence? Okay. I did a total flip on this. So this is a good question. So prior to 08, I was the, the standard aggressive <laughs> real estate person. I would leverage as, as hard and fast as I could. Well, that that's obviously not good. And so in 08, I learned the hard way why that's not good. So now instead of being 80% loan to value, which was pretty standard for me then, maybe even 90 on a personal residence, I'm at about 14% loan to value and it'll be done in two years uh, through some through the infinite banking that I'm working on. And so I've got very, very, very low mortgage to my value. I built this home almost all cash. I just don't see if you're going to, my personal opinion, if you can take that off the table, you sleep better, make better decisions, and the company grows faster because of those first two points. And so I made a conscious effort to stay put where I was with zero to no overhead until such time I could build what I wanted. And, and even that is pretty modest because we just by ourselves now, my wife and I. Interesting. Yeah, good question. So, Chris, what are what could go wrong here with this strategy? One of them could be that you don't, you can't find a buyer. Uh, to that, we what we do, especially when we're new, new new students, we make all the deals contingent upon finding the buyer, and the sellers usually agree to give you 90 or 120 days to do that. If we love the deal and or are getting some good good equity in the back end, we will commit to a certain date. But that's knowing the market well, knowing we can fill it, you know, say in 90 days. But so that could go wrong if you committed without making a contingent upon your buyer. You might be a mortgage payment or two out. So you don't do that until you get some deals going on to, to fund that. The other thing that can happen, and this is really more of a moral and ethical issue that and we've had it happen, is we structure a deal, let's just say three years, to the example we used earlier, and it's a sandwich lease, like we said earlier. And my buyer did everything they could, and they had some hiccups, and they get to the end of the 36 months, and there's, they're ever so close. So I have to call the seller and say, look, we don't want to boot these guys out. They're literally a month or two away. And in all the deals, we've had sellers say, of course, that, you know, no problem. Let's get this thing done. We had one gentleman, December of, let me think, December of 18, who said, no, I told you that's the date. So we had to break the mold and go out. We could have kicked him out. The lease was over. But just morally and ethically, we couldn't. So we went out. We did raise money and closed that. And that's literally in cash to sell out. And, of course, he was tickled. So that's the only deal in hundreds where the seller said, nope. Uh, drop dead the state, boom, done. And so we had a choice, kick the buyer out or go find some money and help the seller out. So you're saying that's where the buyer was close to getting a mortgage and purchasing the property, but couldn't quite get there in time. Yeah. They, and it was great. They had like 60 grand into the property. And so they literally would have lost that and they knew and they were on eggshells. And so I, I just, we just couldn't do it to them. It was myself and one of our students uh, out in Pennsylvania. So we, we, we raised money and easy. I mean, you could do it. I just don't like doing it. And we cashed out the seller and kept the buyer happy and they eventually cashed it out. Okay. Okay, good. So what advice do you give somebody, Chris? One of the things you mentioned to us before the show was to save 50% of your income. Have you always tried to do that? Do you roll it into no, new deals or what do you do? No, again, I did not do that pre-08. <laughs> so post-08, I do live on like 40 to 50% very comfortably. 
Um, I plow a bunch into the infinite banking model that I'm sure many listeners know about. Um, and I plowed into deals and then paying off my own house. Yeah. So what are you putting your money in now? Feel free not to answer this. I mean, if you're not putting money into new deals, is it, is it houses? Is it stuff? Is it to grow the business? Is it, what do you spend it on now? Yeah, I don't mind answering. So I have there's three kind of buckets. One is to grow the business. Uh, you know, we're about to spend a couple hundred grand on just a program to next level some of our internal processes. So it, it's the company for sure constantly. And then number two is the the infinite banking uh, life insurance model uh, that I love uh, and started really getting attached to a couple of years ago. And then three is uh, paying down my house. And that's why I have a specific date I gave you, you know, a couple, a couple of years out. Yeah. So the life insurance, let's talk about that because you've actually had a few people write in that said, hey, do you ever talk to your millionaires about life insurance as a strategy? So how long you've been doing that and, and what's your strategy there? I've been at it for a couple of years. I can't tell you I'm an expert by any means, but I, I trust the gentleman. I met him on a podcast just like us chatting here. And then he actually ended up sponsoring an event for our community. We just really became close. I, I trust him immensely. And so he's got a couple different policies that I plow money into with uh, a nice model. You can do anything you want with it, but I know people that finance their business with it or buy their car with it. In our case, we're just going to keep the model to pay off the house. That's all. But I, I do plow as much as I can into that. I think it's a cool cool system. So what mistakes have you made, Chris? What would you change? Um, well, the biggest one was 08. And so, you know, I changed that. As far as going forward, um, there's always room to grow the mental game. The analogy I can give you is I, I can teach people real estate skill sets. Are, you know, we have courses that do that. Then why do people come out of the gate and do a deal in 30 days, but some 365 days, literally? I think it's all the space between our ears. So as we grow, especially me as an owner and CEO, there's always new challenges. So I'm always seeking new coaches or new groups to get to whatever that next thing is, personal, health-wise, diet-wise, uh, CEO-wise, doesn't matter. Um, just just recently, hired a new new CEO coach for July through December, uh, excited to, to get started with him because that was the next thing I needed to work on. So I mean, it's not like since I changed the model, knock on wood, it's not like there's a there's a mistake. It's constant learning lessons right now, and, and that's the fun part. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit, just briefly, that I know we're getting short on time. How big is, is that played a piece into your success, the mentoring and finding groups and coaches? And is that something you did from a young age? Or when did that start happening, and, and do you advise people to do that? Over the top, important, in my opinion. Success leaves clues. And I think just by the nature of what I said, I found books where people doing deals late 1800s and started looking at that model. I don't care if it's a book, a mentor, a coach, a trusted advisor. There's someone that is doing what you're doing and is way ahead of you. Not did it 20 years ago because that's in real estate, that can be dangerous. I'm talking like they're in the trenches still doing it. And so I, it's, I will tell you that I credit our success as a company to the gentleman I just hired his company. And I tell him that he's humble. And I, he just can't believe I keep singing from the rooftops about him because I didn't know how to get past the couple million dollar a year business. I, I, I don't want to water down the million dollar, $2 million business, but a lot of people can get to that point by muscling it out, like more calls, more emails, more fault, right? Everybody can like be aggressive and do a million dollars in my opinion, but to get past that, it's a different model. It's, it's scaling, growing culture. It's a lot of other things. So coaching and mentoring, in my opinion, is the answer. If you want to grow anything fast, your personal health, anything, if, if you want to improve anything. So yes, I, uh, since high school, I interviewed people my father knew that were business owners. I asked them if I can go buy them coffee and it started with that. And then 
from about 93 or four on, I've always had one or more coaches, almost always. And the scary thing is I thought back a couple of times where I didn't. One was during the 08 crash and one was during the early 90s when I had some, some challenges. Well, that's pretty scary. <laughs> so I had no one to go to and say, what next? Yeah. And so what do they what do they do the most for you, Chris? Help you think differently? Help you <clears throat> solve problems that you haven't seen before? Uh, both. Accountability. Um, uh, that too. Yep. I have an accountability partner and I've had him for two and a half, three years, every Monday morning. Uh, CEO coach, high performance coach. These are people I work with still. So they, they do all of the above. They hold you accountable. They help you think bigger because if they're where you want to be, they obviously um, had some cool stepping stones and some cool mentors themselves. So now you open yourself to an entirely different network. And that in and of itself is pretty, it, that's a lot of fun. And then the growth experience. So all of the above. How much do you spend on that? If you're comfortable sharing or previously, how much have you spent annually? Maybe? Oh, I, yeah, I keep trying to tally this for my students, but I, I got to think I'm well over three or 400 grand in my career. But that right now, as a company, uh, we spend around 40 grand a year on just whatever the next program is we all vote on. And then each of us individually do what we call specialty training. So for me, it's the CEO coaching, and that's another 30. It just depends on what's going on. I'd say per year now as a group, three, my son sent a lot of me, uh, we're easily at like 60 to 100 grand. But I, I got to tell you, I can take one relationship. Uh, Dr. Joe Vitale comes to mind. Uh, he wasn't a coach of mine. We worked together, but just a couple ideas he gave me, I can attribute a quarter of a million to all day long. That's just, you can grow by studying, but, but people is usually the answer. In my opinion, people is the answer. Yeah. So along with that, Chris, w- w- has this money and success and, and teaching others brought you happiness? And, and maybe the better question is, what does happiness mean or living a fulfilled or rich life to you? What as you've kind of seasoned in your career and had these experiences and had the real estate success and helped train the students, what's been the most valuable to you? Uh, two things. I'm lucky enough to be with family in the, in the business. That's a side benefit, right? But to me, happiness or success, or whatever you want to call it, is doing what you want to do when you want to do it without having to think about a schedule or a budget. And that doesn't mean you go out and be crazy. It just means you get to have choice and design your own lifestyle. Sure. Design. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the answer we hear over and over on this podcast. So just in closing here, Chris, I know you've written a couple of books. One of them is titled Real Estate on Your Terms. Tell us about the books and where people can find more about you and get in touch if they're interested. Contact is simple. Just go to smartrealestatecoach.com. There's, um, there's free resources there. We're on YouTube, all free. I'm just big on free to find out what direction you want to go before you plunge into anything. The books are Amazon bestsellers, but if you, you guys want, when we get off, I'll give you a link for the show notes, um, or I can say it, whatever you want, and they can just get them for free. We used to ship them uh, when I'm on shows, but with COVID, we, we will send the electronic links, and all they got to do is say they're on your show and hurt us, and, and then we'll get them the free books. They don't have to go to Amazon. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you. We appreciate that, and we'll include that in the show notes. So again, everybody, that's Chris Prefontaine. Net worth of north of five million, primarily or really all in real estate, right? So, thanks again, Chris, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. That was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.